Our speaker this afternoon is poet and professor Rebecca Kaiser Gibson. She earned a bachelor's degree at Oberlin College, an MAT in teaching theater from Columbia Teachers College, a master's in directing from Pittsburgh University, and a master's in creative writing poetry from Boston University. Ms. Gibson currently teaches poetry at Tufts University, and her poems have been published in Agni, Antigonish, The Boston Phoenix, Field, The Greensboro Review, and The Harvard Review, to name just a few. She received the 2008 Artist Fellowship in Poetry from the Massachusetts Cultural Council and has previously published two chap books, Admit the Peacock and Inside the Exhibition. Ms. Gibson received a Fulbright Scholarship in 2011 to teach poetry at the International Institute of Information Technology in Hyderabad, India. Her essay, Fugitive Soul, about her friendship with poet and author Deborah Diggs, received the Bronze Award from CASE, Best Articles of the Year Higher Education. Today, Gibson will explore the links between the uncomfortable familiar and the curiously intimate strange by reading poems from her new book, Opinel. Please join me in welcoming Rebecca Kaiser Gibson to the Boston Athenaeum. Hello, intrepid ones. Thanks for coming in the rain. Um, First, do you know what an opinel is? It's a little French knife. It, sorry, it, uh, it locks and it opens up. Um, when you're in uh, northern France near the, in the Alps, the guys, usually guys, bang them on the wood and that pops this open and it opens up. Okay, just so you know. I'm, I know you're not supposed to have knives in libraries, so pretend I never did that, okay? Just so you know. Um, Today, I'm going to read selections from um, little groups of three poems about different topics. I thought that would be fun for today. Um, but I want you to understand that Opinel, the, the title, it's, I know a lot of people don't know what the knife is, and in a way, it doesn't matter, because I wanted there to be the sense of the evocations of the word Opinel, like opinion or open or knell or bell or something like that so that even before you find out in the notes what one is, you have a sense of something that you don't quite understand but hopefully is appealing. So that was the idea behind the title. The first um, little group of three has uh, poems that have, the first two have definite locations. The first of the first three is about Park Street, Park Street Station. And many, maybe you have had the same experience I have in the summer when you go there and there's zillions of young, beautiful women in, you know, in summer clothes. So this is about that. I was not one of them. Park Street Station, Boston, Mass. Dressed in sea glass skirts, Stirring salty breezes like waves of pastel. Zillions of them teeming, stubborn, perfect female likenesses. On milky, stilted legs. Hungry, they thronged the scene, tilting fluted necks. 
opalescent-eyed, they saw themselves gorgeous shells of self a swirl. The next one was set in um, Brighton Beach, New York. Do you know that place where my grandmother used to live? Brighton Beach in red sandals. Blood, Grandma said, is thicker than water. Stand apart. Her sofa and chairs shielded in plastic meant no contact, no sand. But when I was seven, I wandered in my red buckled sandals into the wrong apartment lobby among strangers, my nails full of sea, bright sand in my scalp. In the shaft of sunlight, I heard voices calling, drifting like ribbons. And the third one is not really in a place, um, but it's to maybe help you get a little more sense of what I'm up to, and it's by defining my sister a little bit. Her razor, like her mind. My sister, single-minded even underwater, knows the way. She shaves up the underside of leg, her razor like her mind. Her blunt hands prod her cuticles to shape her self-regard is practical. She swims in focus toward a consequence she cannot blur. Wide skies and ambiguity constrict no sunset pearl nor solipsism like the dahlia whose petals curl upon themselves. I remember we were orange blossoms once a breath away. By the way, the, um, the phrase wide skies and ambiguity constrict was something I found in a book about a Turner exhibition. It was his description somehow of his relationship to landscape painting. It seems a little counterintuitive, but it was right there. I copied it out, and there's notes in the back. <laughs> um, the next three poems are all located in Talwar, France, which is where Tufts has a, a priory where they offer summer classes, and where I discovered the Opinel, by the way. And you know, I'm sure, that chamois, what I always thought was just a cloth that my mother made us use to wipe our ice skates with, is actually a wonderful little shy wild goat of the Alps. Once in Orgaval, amidst mountains sheer, where chamois skitter and wild sheep pose impossibly on points of rock, in meadows thick with thistle, I found you, a rare red orchid, glowing in tall grasses, unclouded, silent hours. Part of what was fascinating to me um, about the marketplaces near 
in Talwar was the weird, for, to me weird, meat that was being offered in the marketplaces, including, well, you'll see, <clears throat> Opinel. Knife of peasants, alpinists, artists, thick-bladed to scrape leather, carve cheese, untangle vine, release trapped lambs, hack out ice, slice flesh. The real ones, carbon, sharpened, oiled, darken in a man's hip pocket, fit the palm perfectly, snap open when he knocks. Likewise, horse meat, scrawny rabbits, small-boned, gray, dressed in fur, ready for him to skin them into stew. He's brought pear wine, unlabeled, illegal, bows in courtly folds, prying, savoring. Very fun for me to skip around in the book like this. <laughs> I hope it is for you. And, um, among the other things in the marketplace are sausages made of different odd meats that are identified by the different colored um, strings that are around them, at least in this market. Maybe it's all across France. This is called The String That Is. The string that is green for boar. Blue for donkey sausage. I might have it wrong. That other man with the cart has goat. Killed. Too old for milk. Be sausaged. That maroon meat impossibly is horse. Irreconcilable with love. The chicken man dances the length of his cart with a twirling blade. Now, in honor of this library, where you can sort of randomly pick something off the shelf and discover something you didn't know about, I thought I'd do three poems that have to do with libraries. Um, the first one was inspired when I was, I think, I think this has kind of changed since I was there, but in, at Trinity College in Dublin, where the Book of Kells is, it used to be kept on the second um, floor. And when you walked in, has anyone been to that? Oh, good. When you walked in, there was, at least then, this display with black black background and sort of backlighted information about the Book of Kells or illuminated sections. And the day I was there, it was really hot. It was a long wait before you even got into the black room. And then you go upstairs, and about four people at a time got to look at the page that happened to be open of the Book of Kells that day. Um, the day that I was there one of the women who was looking at the Book of Kells was a person who spoke Latin fluently, or at least read Latin fluently, and she read what was on the page, and the last line of it was Dike Bat, it is said. So the other voice in here is the man trying to make us move quickly through the, through the show. Calf skin was calf's skin. After two months and 20 days, the Book of Kells 
its gold taken and sawed over, was recovered. Everyone in the backlit dark ages is stunned. Please move inside the exhibition. Stray hairs erupt from text. Paintbrushes of Martin fur. Who tried the hair of squirrels, muskrats, donkey brow? Brownish ink is crushed oak apples, iron in gum and water, liable though to fade. Kermie's red is from vermilion pregnant bugs. The peacock feature does not putrefy in death, and two glowing lions form the word dikebat. I was in also Trinity Library in Texas when I picked up this book that had this picture of, a, of an elephant being taken from um, Africa to England and to zoos. And for the first time, instead of, you know, I just realized I'm reading a lot of poems about animals, aren't I? <laughs> sort of odd takes on animals. I didn't know that. Um, anyway, it was the first time I thought about the idea of transporting elephants from there where they should be <laughs> to us, to zoos, as something kind of sweetly intentioned instead of commercially motivated, which is probably more the fact, but I, I had this little moment of, of a feeling affection for the, for the um, I guess I thought of them all as my father, bringing elephants for people. You know, people used to ride elephants at the zoo uh, in Queen Victoria's time bringing all these elephants for young children to enjoy. So I had this moment of the sweetness of it. <laughs> this poem is one long sentence, so get ready. Since elephants were hoisted onto ships as glimpsed once in a lithograph to bring them here or Birmingham from Africa, their massive legs dangling over a strap of highland hemp that held their middles in a lifted hug. And in India, a temple elephant, a century beyond, swaying in his stall and accompanied by food, lifted his trunk, the warm mushroom of it, wholly on my head. Shouldn't I? in any sour-chambered night with no floating ribbons, remember, even in the dark? Oh, yes. This poem, um, I was at the, at the library in Keene, um, and I picked a, randomly picked a book off the shelf, the oldest one I could see, and I opened it up, and I got right to the page talking about Ezekiel. And I read a little bit of it, and I thought, well, this is amazing. Ezekiel apparently was um, brought up with two animal-faced angels, one on each side. And this happened right after my uncle, my uncle Phil died, and I suddenly thought, oh, it's just like him. He was sort of carried through his life by my father and another brother. They're sort of like the animal-faced angels. So that's kind of weirdly how this poem started. I've changed it um, as if it were me and not my Uncle Phil, uh, which was an interesting experience 
all by itself to realize, you know, you can write something thinking you're writing about someone else and then realize it applies to you too. This is called Flight After Death. If, in the company of two animal-faced angels, my thin feet straight before, as written in Ezekiel, my eyes flamboyant auroras, I'd bowed always to the Shekinah, downcast in medieval mind where snails cure infection, if, having spoken holy, holy, holy over the echoic decades, holy corridors reverberating in the fretwork, worked metal intricacies of data, dates, and details, I'd crouched in my bow and readiness to fly with one on each side, winged and furred, lifting me by my ever-bent elbows and light as dust to fly, my heels like a young deer's hitched up bent angle of a self, I'd be empty now. My stories spun out from spindles, a long tail over the hills. I, I'm going to mention in retrospect, I should have told you before, my uncle was, had a photographic memory of detail and was always sort of telling all these stories, but very rigid, like nothing was released. Um, and I wouldn't want to end without doing some poems from India. I think this one is self-explanatory. Part of I couldn't write about India for a year and a half after I came back, because even when I was there, I felt like I didn't understand. I never really understood anything. You know, I... I don't even know how to explain how much I didn't understand and how completely relaxed and happy I was not understanding. But I also felt like I can't just write about it. I can't just appropriate it. Somehow I have to have it go through me and have it matter to me in some way, not just report on it. Um, Ayurvedic massage. In morning, damp, sorry, sallow hair hanging she led me, wordless, into a thatched hut. Dried blood-red fabric pinned to the walls. A single table, slimy oilcloth, one worn towel, um, dark bottles, nothing else. But my dress, snagged, limp on a single nail. Me, stripped, face down, musty, nameless oiled, urgently, sloshed, shivery, then hot, shame rubbed for being without demand. Part of what mystified me was the whole notion of um, avatars, like what counted as a thing that represents God, and what does it mean to represent? And does it include everything, you know, glasses of water? Like, what's included? Um, and so one day I looked out the window, and, you know, you wake up very early because the sun comes in and the day starts. Um, and I saw these four men uh, carting, helping a cart of cement move down the road to the always-going-on building that was happening in Hyderabad. Um, and... 
I thought for a minute, is the cement an avatar? Meanwhile, there was this bird. It's called a hoopoo. Do you know the hoopoo? It makes a sound which I've almost forgotten, but it was, sounds kind of like hoopoo. And it's the most bizarre looking bird you've ever seen because it's yellow in the back and it's got sort of a punk hairdo and it's got some kind of orange. It's just startling. The sound is abrupt and the color is um, flashy. And it was their concentration compared to my kind of wide-eyed wonder at it all and not being able to be a grown-up because I was always being amazed. Known gods. Even before the sun splashes orange dawn on the marble floor, I hear the men outside, only their feet in worn flip-flops, bony and dust-coated, scuffing dry earth to balance, one at each corner of the rusty cart full of cement that sways gray slurry as they navigate the bumpy road. Long-armed, one leans away to counter a dip. No one speaks. I wonder if they sent some oceanic swell in the gray cement, like waves, the manifested sludge and avatar of a fervent god they each attend. Since surely all the men must hear that bird with spiky, punkish crown that darts through yellow blossomed neem leaves as the sun soaks through, and no one needs to look. Only I am startled daily by that hoo-pooing self, its ardent yellow call. We went to a temple in Tamil Nadu for Meenakshi, who's, I think it's one of the few temples that features a female goddess. And Meenakshi means fish-eyed. So I'm sort of thinking about the whole fish-eyed thing and thinking, what, what does that mean? Have they, um, is it something about fish? Or is there some, uh, oh, I should also tell you that people often come to that temple to, because they want, it's a fertility thing. And they do offerings like offering coconut or putting ghee on the sculptures of, I guess they aren't considered sculptures, but the, god, the gods incarnate in the stone. And those gods, by the way, are dressed, Minakshi and her consort Shiva are dressed during the day. In the evening, they're put on a swing, a sort of courtship swing, and then they're put into their bedroom and left there overnight, and then in the morning it starts all over again. Um, the story of Minakshi, uh, who was born a mortal, I hope I'm not telling you too much ahead of time. How's it going? Okay? Okay? Okay. Um, she was born a mortal with three breasts, and when she, was, when she met the person she was going to marry, the, the middle one disappeared. So that's part of her story, and then she became a goddess. So I'm trying to understand all this in some way in here. Minakshi, the fish-eyed goddess. They slather her with ghee, glistening her stone-stiff bosom perch her on a swing, rehearsing some embodied if, and call her fish-eyed, meaning maybe her posited suspension in a liquid world where fish eggs, row bubbles, morph to progeny, themselves imagined, 
or almond-eyed, ovoid, almost almond, though almonds don't account for her capacity for refraction. She keeps looking away from, up, around, or better, into, as if she'll pull some scenario out past the known edge her worshippers wish for ritual. Meanwhile, their need calms them. And the extra breast they claim she had, really just self-consciousness, that lump, wasn't it? Which melted as predicted when she met Shiva. He didn't care, he said, how long it took. They'd talk all through beyond and do. He's patient as a god. So one of the things I did with that was um, in the, one of my first trips with my husband, I started to, um, I started, I didn't know how to start this long, complicated thing I wanted to say. And he said, well, just start. We've got, there's lots of time. So I imported him into the poem, the being patient as a god. And I, you know, it's doing things like trying to make correlations, like the lump is self-consciousness, not an extra breast. You know, we all know what self-consciousness feels like. So it does a little disservice to the original concept, or maybe a lot of disservice, but it was the way I could approach it. Um, this last poem is last. Is this too early? Is that a, anyway, I can do more if you want. The last poem, you'll understand, it's called It's Only Raining. And I was sitting in a... Um, in the New York diner in Watertown waiting for the car repair place to open and the number 71 bus was going up and down Mount Auburn. It's only raining. Meanwhile, the 71 lingers, then leaves. That guy with a wide bandage over his nose here at 5 a.m. does school before he works big shoulders sloped to a book. The two cops nod to him, one tall, one wide, under imitation tulip lamps on cracked brown counter stools. Why do I care? Because of their weight, how they carry it, slouched, thick-thighed, but feet on the, on the floor. A little alert, mostly at ease, and the vinyl seats splitting, accommodating the wide hind petals, men. My tabletop, a maple swirl, one inch thick and washable, not real maple, that's the point, that someone wanted to evoke it. Comforting, they must have thought. I presume that I'm the interloper, voyeur, but what if I'm part of it? The ex-marine at the counter leans towards the waterfall that is the blonde waitress, high cheekbones, high plans, who lifts her cup to his, earning tips for a real house someday. Eric, glow in the dark bike shirt, shuffles in with before sunrise sunglasses, as usual, I assume. One damp leaf on the floor flips up, tracked in on a boot, stem arching. That's it, the way it's all related, unnoticed. Someone will sweep later. He wants the grand slam, eggs, bacon, spuds, toast, no cakes. 
on the radio, another species is shrunk in jaunty morning voice, not dire. Everything works out, says one painter to the other, adding packet after packet of sugar to his marriage. I can hardly eat. I am so full of love for those who don't know I love them. It's only raining. Toast is buttered. The sky grows lighter, slightly 